They work on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. They work just about everywhere. So why not short videos to pitch ideas to Defense Department program managers and contracting officers? That's the idea behind the year-old Tradewinds project under the DOD's Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office. Now there's a new development at Tradewinds, how to apply AI to contract writing, artificial intelligence. We get more now from the Tradewind executive lead, Bonnie Evangelista. Ms. Evangelista, good to have you with us. Oh, thanks. Appreciate your time. And let's talk about this year-old effort on videos. And just to get a progress report, how many videos have been presented and what are you generally getting in from vendors and what types of products are they pitching in this manner? So... Like you said, as of November 1st, we will be a year old. We are somewhere in the range, and someone's going to probably slap me for not knowing my numbers off the top of my head, but we're somewhere in the range of over 150 videos in what we call the Tradewind Solutions Marketplace. But we've assessed somewhere close to 400 videos, so you can kind of get a sense of the ratio there of what's coming in versus what's staying in and what's not making it in. Outside of that, to me, it's one of the coolest ways we're trying to lower barriers to entry for industry. And rather than asking for technical proposals, even slick sheets or white papers, or if you're familiar with quad charts, we're actually aligning with, I think, what industry is used to on the commercial side, which is just a product pitch. It's very closely aligned to a venture capitalist pitch that you, if you've seen Shark Tank before, it's not quite that edgy maybe and and (laughs) quick, but we're asking for the same things. What is your solution and what problem are you solving? That's like the first minute of a Shark Tank pitch. And then we also want to know, well, why, like, what's the magnitude for you solving my problem and what makes you different in your market? Why are you innovative or unique or what are you doing differently that maybe we should understand? I love that approach because it just gets away from the entire, I don't know, industry of proposal writing. And it gives, I think, industry an easier, especially startups and small businesses, an easier mechanism to try to break in that government front door. And do you get the sense from the videos that people have done their homework because you have specific (laughs) missions, there are specific requirements that are developed by the armed services and so on. So they're not just, quote unquote, shooting in the dark with these. Right. And I think you kind of get a sense of that when you see what the ratio is versus what we're getting in for assessment versus what's actually staying in because a lot of people aren't doing their homework. I think they're assuming it's just like any other video pitch that they might have done before. And like you said, we have very specific questions. So if you aren't answering or addressing the questions, you're not going to make it. It's not so arbitrary that everybody gets in, but we do have an established protocol that we're asking industry to pay attention to. And then Creating videos now is just as easy as texting on your phone. You know, you can use an app on your phone to do it. So it's less about production quality and it's more about addressing the questions and convincing us that I'm going to use a cyber term that you're not selling vaporware. Sure. Well, what happens if you say, wow, this is really good? Again, not the production value, but the information in that video. What happens next to one you like? Congratulations. Welcome. You're in the marketplace. So, what does that mean if you're in the marketplace? Because we have gone through, I would say, painstakingly diligence to ensure that I'm going to call it our solicitation methodology and execution is aligned with regulation and statutory requirements. Vendors now who are in the marketplace have gone through a competitive assessment process for multiple authorities. And by checking that competition box, 
you now have a mechanism to receive or potentially get a government contract. So someone like me, a practitioner on the government side who is supporting a government buyer has the ability to do business directly with you for your solution, not for anything, for your solution, right? This is a product and services pitch. And we can do business directly with you on the basis of competition because of that published process that we were just talking about. And if you essentially, if you're determined to have technical merit against that process and against the criteria that we've published, then you're in. And we, again, we've met the competition standard for multiple authorities. So now we have an ability to do business. We're speaking with Bonnie Evangelista, the execution lead for the Tradewinds Initiative under the Defense Department's Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office. But essentially, why the video? Why can't they just call you up on a Zoom chat? I mean, what is the advantage of the small, short video other than it feels cool like, you know, kind of the vernacular in social media? For us, it was not just the most modern way to communicate right now, but it's easier to consume. Like as a consumer of the video from a government buyer perspective, there's a little bit more of a ease of adoption hurdle we don't have to go through if we are just telling people, hey, you just need to watch a five minute video pitch or like five or six of these video pitches rather than reading pages of technical proposals or other information that again, would maybe be less less of a draw for people. And how are the production values, by the way? I mean, some of the big contractors have full-fledged broadcast-grade studios in them, but I wonder if they have the savvy to maybe not use them to try to not snow you, you know, with production value. Yeah, I think we've seen quite a range. Honestly, when you open up the aperture, you get to see how creative people are. I've seen people videotaping them demoing a product like from a phone and overlaying some text or some other images to kind of show us what's going on. And then I've seen some really high quality videos that definitely look professionally produced. And honestly, as nice as that is, and of course, that is the submitter's discretion as to whether like, how do they want to present themselves within their means and whatnot. At the end of the day, the most comments I get from people are really about the content. Like, oh, that solution does or does not really align with my mission set or something. And there's less commentary about the production quality. All right. And let's get to the topic of artificial intelligence in contract writing, because Mm -hmm. that's a challenge across DOD, really across government, because of so many clauses that are required in federal contracts, but they're not all required in all contracts. On the other hand, if you leave out a crucial one, you can really have trouble. And it's been really difficult time to develop commercial contract writing systems. And there's been some spectacular failures of that. So tell us about the AI in contract writing and what are you doing there? We have a prototype. It's been almost 18 months now, going on two years, that we've been prototyping this capability. And it honestly started as a proof of concept. We really didn't have an idea of what it was going to look like on the other side of this. So when I initially issued a challenge for show me something cool and AI and contract writing and show me like what the art of the possible is, most companies responded with, I will build you whatever you want. And remember, I don't know what I want. I wanted an idea of where we could maybe break some glass or push some boundaries. And me not being a technical person, I was hoping to take maybe something that's already out there and and see if we can modify it. Mm -hmm. And there was one company, though, that 
had started thinking about this problem, I would say on the proposal writing industry side, and they said, we can show you what we're doing and where the technology is going. And so that started with, this was about nine months before OpenAI released ChatGPT, and I had no idea what generative AI was. And my first introduction to that was 45 days into the project, there was an MVP demo, and they took a very descriptive title, like a project title, and it generated two paragraphs of text to help us define what the problem statement for the project might be. And that immediately took us down a path of how do we immediately adopt this type of capability into our business workflow where we're working with customers to define what their mission gaps or mission needs are. Because my team in particular is leveraging non-FAR based authorities such as other transaction authorities. That's typically the place we're at. We're not defining requirements. We're more so defining problems so that industry can come to us with the solutions. And so the generative AI technology part is really helping us increase velocity in our teams because it kind of streamlines and improves our ability to articulate and create language around something that we need more clarity on. Because a lot of times, even when we're working with our customers, having a blank sheet of paper and us telling them, tell us what your problem is, can be a little scary or a little daunting. And having generative AI act as like a junior writing assistant and take a best guess based on some human input, uh, what it is we're looking for, and then us continuing to refine it has increased our ability tremendously to reduce, I would say, those lead times going into like us publishing something that industry would consume on the solicitation side. So I've no kidding been able to take a process that could take weeks or months with the right people in the room around like this tool and us editing in real time together, we can do it in 30 minutes and come up with a problem statement. And then the tool also helps us generate tr- structured text on the back end so that we can publish announcements very, very quickly. So it's more than really contract writing. Technically, it sounds like it's more coming to a meeting of the minds agreement type of application. Absolutely. I will say that's where we started, all right? Because I, once I saw what it was capable of, I said, I can use this today to do this. And now we're trying to figure out where else can we leverage and optimize what's happening here into contract writing. So that's kind of the exploration and the journey we're on right now. Bonnie Evangelista is execution lead for the Tradewinds Initiative under the Defense Department's Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? 
Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.